I've wondered about that. I, I, I've wondered about how Sylvester made that transition from being really pretty much out of control in the studio to sounding very much in control on his hits. That's Ben Sidron. He produced Sylvester and the Hot Band's debut album in 1973. It's possible that given the nature of disco, it was easier to stay in the area where his voice was more comfortable. Or maybe simply the disco scene was just his scene. I said, we ought to do a disco song. I really don't like disco music at all. But maybe we should do a disco record and throw our record in the pot, too. So, it turns out the disco scene was not Sylvester's scene. But like it or not, in 1978, it was everywhere. On CBS's 60 Minutes, Dan Rather talked about disco music's massive commercial appeal. Disco, a very large, very lucrative new business of dance music. Maybe the biggest wave yet, because it certainly seems that more and more Americans are getting more and more into the disco scene. Disco had gone from multicultural underground dance music to the sound of mainstream radio. The soundtrack to the movie Saturday Night Fever had just become the biggest selling album in history. Artists like The Village People, The Bee Gees, Donna Summer, Gloria Gaynor pulsed from the speakers at Studio 54, Paradise Garage, and clubs across the country. But it was not music Sylvester particularly loved. Here's filmmaker and Sylvester expert Stephen Winter. What is this deal with disco? I think Sylvester had bought the myth that disco was somehow cheap, that it was somehow a lesser form of music. He wanted to be like Gladys Knight or Diana Ross or Aretha Franklin, real singers doing real songs with real musicianship. He didn't like disco, so he changed it to what he needed it to be. Sylvester had made an album for Fantasy Records, and he'd had a minor hit with a grooving dance floor track called Over and Over. It was disco-esque a half-step in that direction. But a minor hit was not enough. Sylvester was a star, and he needed his monster hit song to prove it. I'm Jason King. This is Sound Barrier, a show about artists who break new ground in music and culture. This season, we're looking at Sylvester, or as he's sometimes called, the Queen of Disco. This is episode four, Giant Step. Sylvester and me, that was our focus. Get on the radio, make a hit record. That's guitarist James Tip Weirich. James had joined Sylvester the year before and had become the band leader, doing arrangements and running rehearsals. But what he really wanted was to get his original songs on the records. So there he was, noodling on his guitar, trying to write a hit. The first stage was me writing the music in my dumpy little studio apartment in San Francisco. And even at the time, I said to myself, this could be big. This could be a big record. Tip had written the music for Mighty Real. And it was a ballad, a medium tempo, beautiful ballad. After I presented the song to Sylvester, he literally wrote the lyrics at the rehearsal, sort of off the top of his head, and we just went with it. Instead of la, 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 he, you know, he just started throwing out words and just came up with that phrase. I don't think he ever wrote it down. I never wrote the lyrics down. I really literally had to learn it again later on when I had to sing it from the record because I didn't... You didn't think it was going to be such a hot? No, and I didn't think the song was that hot either. Sylvester dismisses the song in that interview. 
But at the time, he and James were pretty deliberate about what they were after. The guys in the band didn't want to play it with a disco feel. And Sylvester and I, we made them. We said, no, you have to play it this way. And they finally acquiesced and played it that way with the octave bass and the quarter note kick drums. After we finished just that one run through, we high-fived each other because we were like, that's what's on the radio, that's what we want to do. And the guys, the other guys were like, uh, you know, Donna Summer, ugh. But we were going, yeah, but she's on the radio. James had written a real earworm. And even if Sylvester was just ad-libbing in the studio, his lyrics had captured something meaningful. But it still needed something. Or someone. Patrick Cowley came on board probably two years after I had been in the group. Background singer Martha Wash. Him and Sylvester got together and just started working and writing songs and things, and the combination worked. He kind of ushered in that sound with Sylvester, which made Sylvester's music stand out. San Francisco DJ Chrissy Shively. Patrick Cowley was studying synthesizer at the City College of San Francisco and working as a lighting tech at a venue called the City Disco. And he was making these kind of synth experiments in a bedroom studio in his spare time. Sylvester had been performing at the cabaret on and off for years. It was the little downstairs room at the City Disco. Somehow, Patrick got a hold of a rough rehearsal tape of that song. James Wirick. And then overdubbed a bunch of, uh, you know, bouncy synth bass lines and his swirly effects on top. Sylvester heard that, and he instantly said, I want that on the record. Patrick was not particularly musical. Patrick was brilliant at sounds. But literally, if you sat Patrick at a piano, he could not play Mary Had a Little Lamb with one hand. Could not. Back then, it was analog tape delay. That's what he used. I had issue with the tuning on some of those, and that kind of bothered me, but I had no creative control, so I just had to shut up. Sylvester and the band went in to record their album Step 2 at Fantasy Records in Berkeley. The tracks were recorded live with, you know, four guys in the room and Sylvester singing in a booth. And it was very old school. You would play the song and then they'd say, that's fine, do it again. And then they'd say, that's fine, do it again. And you just kept doing takes until you got one that suited Harvey and Sylvester. Sylvester's producer, the Motown legend Harvey Fuqua, pulled Sylvester aside and said, this song is a motherfucker. Nikki Siano. When you have a record that people hear for the first time and love it, like Mighty Real, it's like gold to a DJ. Patrick's swirling arpeggios pan across the speakers, sync to the propulsive beat. It sounds like a robot whirring to life like Studio 54 R&B meets Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Sylvester would later say to Patrick in the liner notes to the new album, I will always love and be grateful to you for being right on time. You make me feel mighty real. This is an anthem now, affirming your queer self. Malik Gaines is an artist and the author of Black Performance on the Outskirts of the Left, 
A History of the Impossible. I think I saw someone on Drag Race <laughs> singing the song just the other night. Actor and singer Alex Newell. You Make Me Feel Mighty Real is a gospel song. In my heart, it is. Because you don't know who that you is, that you could be anyone or anything. Some people may have thought disco was a gimmick, but in the gay community, it felt more like protest music. Malik Gaines. You Make Me Feel Mighty Real is all about being together. That's the togetherness of the club. That's the disco dance floor where sexualities are being invented on the spot <laughs> to the beat. And that's the togetherness of this community that had organized itself in San Francisco. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. That's from a short documentary from the UCLA archives, featuring someone who was about to make history. Journalist Robert Julian Stone lived in the Castro District in San Francisco in the late 1970s, just a block or so from Sylvester. Well, Harvey Milk had run for supervisor in San Francisco three times, and he lost twice. Harvey Milk owned a camera shop in the neighborhood. And even if he didn't get elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors those first couple of times, people started calling him the mayor of Castro Street. The third time he won because San Francisco had switched from open election of supervisors to district election of supervisors. And suddenly the Castro was a district and Harvey got elected. And it was one of the most joyous occasions. We finally had someone in power who could represent our interests specifically. And he did that. Local news station KRON covered Harvey Milk's victory parade with a tone that's slightly celebratory, slightly scandalized. Like they're not totally sure what to make of him. As political parades go, it was a little unusual. Harvey Milk on his way to City Hall to be sworn in as a supervisor in San Francisco. At his side, his gay lover. Harvey Milk had become the first openly gay elected official in California history. Robert Julian Stone saw Harvey speak at the UCSF campus. It was a very small group because it was the late 70s and people weren't all that comfortable being out. And he told us that we were doing the really important work by being open and out in a public way and that nothing was more important than that. Sylvester would hang out at Harvey's camera store and they got to be good friends. They had become the Castro's shining stars two voices of liberation who had started to achieve mainstream success and maybe even acceptance. Harvey Milk and Sylvester understood that the way that they ended up in this place at this time was really no accident. Filmmaker Stephen Winter. They came to this town for freedom. They used their lives to get to that end. And then they were spreading it all around. And their contrast of him being a white gay guy and him being a black drag queen, their friendship was about there is no dissonance between us. There is only complete understanding. And within that shared understanding, we could change the world. Sylvester and the Two Tons of Fun performed at Harvey Milk's birthday party in May of 78. I was called by Fantasy Records that said, hey, Sylvester's playing. We're doing a birthday party for Harvey Milk. Dan Cuny had seen Sylvester and the Hot Band open for David Bowie in 1972. Now, six years later, Dan was working as a photographer. We need somebody there to take kind of grip and grin type pictures, but really more of what's going on with Harvey and Sylvester and the gay community. I was just looking through Dan's photos and they're amazing. 
Candid black and white shots. The crowd is mixed, men and women, black and white. Everyone dressed down, very casual, even Sylvester. He's in a short sleeve shirt and pants, relatively basic by his fabulous standards. There's a shot of Harvey being presented with a cake. He looks absolutely delighted, grinning like a kid. Another of Harvey blowing out candles. Uh, one that really struck me. An image of Harvey up on stage, standing in front of Sylvester. Harvey was saying, I love your music. You're a beautiful person. He gave him a kiss. Their faces are full of hope and possibility. In the spring of 1978, the news program Who's Who did a profile of a former Miss Oklahoma named Anita Bryant, who had become the face of an anti-gay movement called Save Our Children. For several years, I've been praying for God to revive America. And when word came that there was an ordinance in Miami that, that would allow known homosexuals to teach my children, God help us as a nation to stand in these dark days. If Harvey Milk and Sylvester were about living out loud, Anita Bryant's message was the exact opposite. As long as they do their job and do not want to come out of the closet and force their homosexuality on me in the areas of business or in the schools, they can live their life and I'm... It was a message Sylvester would have been familiar with from his days in the church. We don't care who you love as long as you stay quiet. But with the recording of his new record almost done, Sylvester was about to be anything but quiet. Step 2 came out in August 1978, and the two singles, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real and Dance Disco Heat, just exploded. Sylvester had arrived late to the disco party, but he skipped straight to the front of the line. I was invited to the Billboard convention. There I was on the dais with Cher, the village people, Grace Jones, I mean, all of the divas. I won every award. Best song, best mix, best vocals. Sylvester was thrown into this mainstream thing like that, overnight. Sylvester's road manager and friend, Tim McKenna. Sylvester had broken over to the black community and straight white community. It was just mainstream. I have a large gay following wherever I am, sure, but the majority of my audience is heterosexual, I won't say straight because it makes being gay sound crooked, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a heterosexual audience. And I don't think it has anything to do with sex at all, except that they get off on the music. Maybe it was perfect timing or his unique vocals or the innovative synth sounds of Patrick Cowley. But all of a sudden, one day in the fall of 1978, Sylvester was a disco icon. Singer Jeannie Tracy worked at Fantasy Records. She'd gone to see Sylvester at the Elephant Walk with Harvey Fuqua just a couple of years before. She watched him become a star almost overnight. We were walking down the street, and people in their cars, they would scream out of the windows, Sylvester, Sylvester. And then they would all leap out of the cars and crowd around him. I said, Sylvester, how does that make you feel? He said, oh, girl, I always wanted it. I remember standing outside of the garage one night, the Paradise Garage in New York, trying to get a taxi. And I had on a mink coat, and I was painted in my red wig. And these boys, drug dealers, were coming up and grabbing their girlfriends and introducing me to them, telling me how much they loved me. There was a very deep understanding in Sylvester's heart that he had achieved something that no black queen like him had ever achieved before. 
Stephen Winter. But he also, <laughs> he had an ambivalence about this funny little song that had brought him there. And this passing fad, perhaps, of a musical genre that he was now deeply associated with. Mighty Real was not my favorite song. My favorite song was Dance Disco Heat. Dance Disco Heat was written by Sylvester's keyboardist, Eric Robinson. Well, Eric Robinson could just absolutely play his ass off. Very talented singer, keyboardist, composer. Eric was known for writing too many words in a song. He would cram so many words in one line that it would be just crazy. And I was like, Eric, that's too many words in one line. Give us a chance to breathe. kind of had a joke about the song. We kind of mess up the words a little bit, you know, call it disco meat, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, that was always my favorite. Dance Disco Heat and You Make Me Feel Mighty Real both spent weeks at number one on the Billboard dance charts. All the hottest clubs played his music and not just in the U.S. The next thing I knew, I'm on the Concord on my way to Paris. It wasn't that long ago that Sylvester had taken a train and then a bus to Harvey Fuqua's office in an old supermarket in Oakland. Now, he was flying to Paris on the Concord. You make me feel. Un bellissimo regalo. Sylvester, welcome to Top of the Pops. The record's called You Make Me Feel. Mighty real. Right. <laughs> Is it doing well in the States? Very well. It's like number one in the disco charts. Sax player Mark Baum. The European gigs were really fun. And a lot of excitement. I mean, like, packed to the rafters, the chicest of the chic Euro set. They treated Sylvester like a god. And their shows were getting amazing. I used to marvel at the moments that Sylvester had in a show. He had every moment. This was kind of an old, uh, you know, gospel show business kind of thing. There was the fun moment. There was the, the big energized moment. There was the touching moment. He was a master of the touching moment. Every night it felt, it felt like it was just Sylvester in the audience. The closer was Dance Disco Heat. Sylvester would build that thing forever. Leave the stage, you know, it's like James Brown tradition. Ladies and gentlemen, Sylvester, Sylvester, Sylvester's back, you know. Do no 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 no. Everything was sold out. Major concerts in the Netherlands and England, Paris, Germany, Italy. Road manager Tim McKenna. This was his dream. This is what he wanted. And when you had those first tastes of it, it's absolutely great. He gave them what they wanted. He gave them champagne and being at the right parties and you know, the whole thing. Finally, Sylvester was a superstar. His dream had come true. But riding high comes with a lot of baggage. You know, all of a sudden this stuff welling up and welling up, including the whole turning into a star trip of limousines and screaming people and all of that. If you think of the band as an airplane, Sylvester was in first class, obviously. Harvey Fuqua and the two tons were up front, too. Maybe a few rows back, like business class. New guy Patrick Cowley had suddenly been invited to sit up there, too. 
but James Tip Weirich, who led the band and had written the song that had made Sylvester a star? Or Eric Robinson, who had written Sylvester's other giant hit? They and the others were sitting in coach. And they knew it. Stephen Winter. When you look back at the drama that went on between Sylvester and his bandmates and his co-writers, I would say that the lion's share of the blame has to go to Harvey. He was creating a situation where there was going to be jealousies and anger because he wasn't treating Tip the way he should have been treating Tip, as well as the other band members. Sylvester, of course, is guilty of deciding to turn a blind eye to that because there's no way he didn't know. He just didn't care. Whoever's fault it was, the hit songwriters in Sylvester's band weren't getting the appreciation they deserved. But worse than that, they weren't getting the money either. Author Josh Gamson interviewed James Weirich in the early 2000s for his book. Harvey, Bequois, and Nancy Pitts. And they had an attorney representing them. Yeah. He had come to me at, what was I, 19 years old, and said, we're going to take care of your publishing. I didn't know anything about music publishing on it. And I said, fine. And so I would get these checks for, you know, $200, $500. Turns out, when they would get a check for, let's say, $15,000, they would write me a check for $200 and keep the rest. $200 out of $15,000? You can understand why James Wirk might have a problem. Then James shows up at a party for Mighty Real Going Gold and discovers that they were one gold record short. We got to the party, and there were gold records for, like, Harvey and Nancy and Sylvester. Actually, everyone but me. And I was so pissed. I'm like, Harvey, where's my gold record? I wrote the fucking song, you know? Not giving a gold record to the guy who wrote the song? (laughs) You're not even on the same airplane anymore. This dynamic was not going to last. And for Sylvester... The issues with Harvey and Nancy were only going to get worse and a lot closer to home. Even at the height of Sylvester's success, the fantasy was already coming apart. Coming up next time on Sound Barrier. There was a cultural war going on that was being fought between the San Franciscans and other factions. And all across America, folks were getting surprised at how many were choosing San Francisco's side. In a moment of crisis, Sylvester's music brings his community together. If there was anything that could have picked us up, it would have been Sylvester. But within the band, things are falling apart. We have a lawyer arguing about money. We were all pissed. I don't think Sylvester knew any of this was going on. And the sound that made him a star is facing a crisis of its own. You know, when Ethel Merman released her disco album, people were like, all right, we got to stop this. We got, we, we got, we're going to have to stop. Ethel Merman has entered the chat. That's next time on Sound Barrier. Sound Barrier is a Spotify original podcast from Best Case Studios. It was hosted by me, Jason King, and written by me, Adam Pincus, Brent Katz, and Stephen Winter. Brent Katz is senior producer, and Karkeet is our producer. Associate producers are Ashley Warren and Ali Gallo. Josh Gamson is consulting producer. Co-producers are Louis Spiegler, Christian D. Bruin, and Tim Smith. This episode was edited by Adrian Lilly, with assistance from James Hansen, and mixed and mastered by Dean White. Paul Dallas is our archival producer, with help from Katie Heiserman. Music is by Gautam Schrickeschen, Sam Retzer, and Roger Neal, 
with additional music from Brent Katz, Blue Dot Sessions, and Five Alarm. Music supervision by Joel C. High and Sammy Posner, with help from Ricky Holman. Executive producers are me, Jason King, Adam Pincus for Best Case Studios, and Stephen Ames Brown for The Sylvester Estate. Corinne Gilliard is executive producer for Spotify. Special thanks to Harry Weinger, Shirley Ramos, Brian Smith, Linda Cohen, Galen Mullins, Kevin Pham, Baron Farmer, Gina Delvac, and Elena Myers. Find and follow Sound Barrier only on Spotify.